Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible clinical psychologist and sex therapist, Dr. Nazanin Mowali. Hello, Nazanin, and welcome to the show. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Today, we are going to be talking about navigating desire discrepancies. And for those that don't know, Dr. Nazanin Mowali is a licensed clinical psychologist and certified sex therapist. Her private practice is located in Los Angeles, and she specializes in working with couples and individuals struggling with issues of intimacy. She received her bachelor's from the University of California, San Diego, her master's degree in clinical psychology from Pepperdine University, and her PhD in clinical psychology at Alliant International University. Dr. Mowali has been hosting a weekly podcast called Sexology for almost five years, introducing the most intriguing findings in the psychology of sex and intimacy. How are you today, Dr. Mowali? I'm doing well. What about yourself? I'm so well, and I'm so excited for our topic today on navigating desire discrepancies because it's so important and it's something so many couples struggle with. And I know when we talk about desire discrepancy, it normally references differences in, in sexual desire. But before we get into that, I want to talk about the conflict that so easily happens when two people just want different things in relationships. So one person wants a big house, the other one wants a small one, one wants three kids, one wants one, one wants the black couch, the other one wants the brown one. So I'm really curious how couples can best navigate their differences with greater ease. Well, Zach, you brought up such an important point because it's completely normal for couples to have different preferences, different preferences in food, in in colors, all of those wonderful things that you mentioned. Uh, I think that sometimes people think that if I want something different than my partner, I'm bad or they are bad or we're not compatible. Mm. But it's important to know that that's completely normal and work on communicating what it's important for you. Uh, of course, we all, we don't want to get into fight all the time. But what I see often happens that couples are not talking about what's important for them. They're not verbalizing their own preferences and then the resentment builds up. And somehow for something random, they snap at their partner because there's been the accumulation of all of these little things that they've done that it wasn't what they wanted to do. And the partner had no clue. So when we're talking about our preferences with our partner, we'll let them know about what we want. And there are different ways that we can resolve and navigate uh, these things that we can talk about it. But again, starting with knowing that's that's okay and communicating Mm -hmm. with your partner. These are the main two things that I always tell people to keep in mind. So 
I'm really curious because I want to go into how we can best communicate those desires because I'm imagining like, okay, someone listens to, to this podcast and they say, I need to tell my partner what I want. So they come home and they say, honey, you're a mess. You never clean the house <laughs> and I need this place to be clean. And the other one's like, you know, I've had a long day. I just want to relax, right? And so, so easily, like the things that we want do turn into attacks on the other one because we want our life to be a certain way. We want our house or our kids to be a certain way. And our partner wants a way that is different from that one. So when we do broach the subject, how can we do it so it doesn't turn into an attack and that we can empathize with where our partner is coming from? Well, one thing that's important is to kind of have this kind of routine time that you guys are talking about, household things, things mm. that are kind of re require some check-in. So it's not like in the middle of the kind of really tough work day, you're sharing that with your partner and maybe they're not ready to hear it. They say things and that can build up conflict. So having a designated place that you can talk about uh, wants and desires about things inside and outside the bedroom is very important. Um, mm. My invitation for people is to give a heads up to their partner if that's something that's important for them, if this is a recurrent issue that you're noticing. Uh, ask them that, honey, you know, there is something I want to talk to you about that it might take 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes. When would be a good time? So you mm -hmm. are uh, asking them about their preferences. So when they will be open to hear you when the time is right, hopefully, I think that is important. Important. The other part is to keep in mind that communication is purely skill. Uh, it's not a yes, it could be partly innate, but most people who are good at communication, that's something that's been modeled for them in their family of origin. So if you mm. don't have that skill yet, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person, you're broken. Uh, this is a dance you're learning with your partner. Uh, so I think that's important to keep in mind. And always start with uh, describing the situation in a very neutral way. You're not kind of like saying that you're doing this, you're not blaming that, saying that this is what I'm noticing. This is a kind of the same way that if you wanted to say a neutral, like you're watching PBS news, they're talking about things in a neutral way. You're describing the situation and asking how they're seeing it. So you're inviting them in, into this conversation. And at the end, you can say your preference that I would love it if we can do this. And think about it at times, um, you can negotiate things, but also there are things that your partner might not agree. And I think that's, that's okay to keep in that, keep that in mind as well. Uh, you don't need to agree with your partner on every single point, but you can mm -hmm. build a plan that both of your needs are going to get met. Yeah, I love so many of those insights that you just brought in. First of all, that communication is a skill. It's something that we can learn and develop. And that's a huge impetus behind this podcast is we are kind of told that love is something that naturally arises and happens when we find the right person. But when we do find the right person, we do find that there's conflict that naturally arises around like our desires and how we want things to be. And I even remember I was at a friend's house recently and we were having dinner and I was like, oh, that's a really nice cat statue uh, that they had like on their mantle. And the wife was like, oh, I love that statue. And the husband was like, I hate that statue. 
And it was funny because it's like clearly like, you know, there was still love and connection between them. And they both clearly had had conversations about this this little thing in their in their house. And that's the dance that you describe, right? This like back and forth, push and pull. I want this. I don't want this. And a lot of couples have come into your office and I'm curious you know, John Gottman uses this term, there's the masters and there's the disasters. And <laughs> I'm wondering, what are the couples that do the dance really well doing? And what are the couples that aren't doing this dance doing so much that they end up in crisis in the therapist's office? Such a great point. I know the couples that they're successful in communicating with their partner is that they see the issue as an issue. Right, that this is like if the issue is that you're not putting your clothing in the uh, kind of like washer room or you're not putting it on the basket, you're not bad, mm-hmm. you're not a horrible person, this task is not getting done. But what happens at times I see that people personalize things that when mm. you're asking me to pick up my sock, you're, you mean that I'm, I'm a bad person. And that that's an argument that you cannot win. So when you are focused on the problem, when you're doing problem solving, that's that's really important. The other mm. piece that I see that's really helping couples to resolve the conflict, seeing that they are in a team, like you are teammate when you're resolving mm. this issue. Uh, it's not like about winning. It's about what's going to work for us. So that's that's also very important. The other piece that at times I see that's really helpful for people that are in a happy long-term relationship is when they are verbalizing when things are not working for them. Uh, going mm. back to family of origin, uh, sometimes we learn that if I say what I want, uh, you might reject me or you might not be able to uh, meet my need because that's that how things were in my family. And therefore, I'm not talking to you about my true desires. And our partners are not mind readers. And when there's an accumulation of these things years after years, and we're not truly telling our partner about things that bothers us, then that can create uh, so many negative emotions and accumulation of those things can lead to all sorts of relational disasters. And that's something that I see often in couples that are, that are coming in when they're in the verge of separation and divorce. Yeah, I love so many of the things you just said. The first one being that couples should recognize they're on the team. And I do think friendship and friendliness is a really important foundation for any partnership. And then I love the frame that you just mentioned around shifting from thinking this is like me versus you to this is us versus the problem. or This is us versus the issue. And it's absolutely true that I do think successful couples deal with problems as they come up rather than let them build up over time and over time and over time until it just explodes in the future. And when we talk about this discrepancy of desire, I'm thinking about one of the most fundamental conflicts, I'll say, in relationships around the relationship we have with ourselves and the desires we have for ourselves and the things we desire for our relationship, which often kind of run contrary to each other. When I think about desire discrepancies, I think about maybe one person really values their independence and alone time, and the other one really values connection. I even remember I was talking to a friend, 
about the beginning of the relationship with the person who is now my fiance. And I was like, yeah, we met and then we spent every day together for the next six months. And that's when you know, right? And my friend was like, that sounds terrible. <laughs> I was like, what? You don't want to spend every all day every day with the person that you love? And they're like, absolutely not, right? So some people, you know, do want to spend all day every day with their partner. Some people really value their alone time. So there is this balance of meeting our own needs that we need for ourselves and also giving ourselves to the relationship and how do we again navigate that difference of of desire between like connection togetherness quality time and separateness aloneness independence to pursue our own passions I thought you brought up such a great example, Zach, with you and your fiance and what you want. And it reminded me and my husband. Uh, so I moved here. I, I was talking to you earlier that I'm originally Iranian. I moved here when I was 17 alone and I lived another decade of my life alone. So mm. when I married my husband, which uh, I, I, I love him and we are together for 10 years now, uh, but I definitely, for me, the norm was to have a lot of alone time. I, I, it doesn't mean like I didn't love him or I don't love him, but my need for independence was also, it was a big part of who who I am and who I was. Mm -hmm. I think when it comes to this, I think it's really important to, first of all, know yourself and uh, knowing that, okay, this is, I'm a person that needs my alone time and together, to togetherness and communicating that with your partner uh, in a loving way. Uh, if, when I'm uh, doing things, when I'm doing like going on my own hikes or I'm going to my own workshops, it doesn't mean like I don't love my husband. I don't desire to be with anyone else, but it's filling my own cup. And sharing that with my partner uh, has been very helpful. And I encourage people to, first of all, honor their true self. Because when we are in relationship, at times, especially early on, we feel this obligation that, okay, I'll do whatever my partner uh, want to do. And that is the price of admission. If I share with them that I want some alone time or this is something I want to do alone, that might hurt them. But again, it's all about how you're presenting that. Mm. And the other piece is too much togetherness can kill desire. I've seen it a mm. lot that people are together, even post-retirement. The couple's been working uh, all their lives and now together all the time. Uh, it creates lots of togetherness. Uh, at times, it kills this passion and desire for wanting our partner uh, and want to be kind of like dis uh, discover them. So uh, it's, it's important to create a good balance between you and your partner and having ongoing conversation about it. And mm -hmm. in different chapters of our lives, these desire to together be together and separate can change. Sometimes we need more alone time and sometimes we need more togetherness. And if you are the partner that you you want to be with your uh, partner and there's nothing wrong with that, it's important to, if your partner at times are not available, create the uh, tribe of people 
that will help you to meet that need of togetherness. Mm. In the past, we had the entire village and like tribal people like meeting different needs. And right now we're putting this expectation that our partner are our, they're our, our best friend, lover, accountant, confidant. And that's, that's not reasonable. So I encourage people to, for all of us to build our own support system. So we don't project all of our need to our partner. That's such an important insight. What I'm really gathering from you is that it's not necessarily like what you do, but how you do it. We could have a need for a long time because we want to escape from the relationship or because we're filling up our own cup. And we can even say like, hey, I need tomorrow to myself so I can be the best partner I can for you like the rest of the week. Right. And then it's, there isn't that sense of abandonment or fear around like losing the other person. So you mentioned that too much togetherness can kill desire. And I want to go deeper into that because when we talk about desire discrepancy, maybe we think one person wants a little bit and one person wants a lot, but sometimes one person wants nothing. They have no desire at all. Um, and this can really happen in in the bedroom where one person doesn't feel attraction and passion for their partner anymore as time has gone on. So... You mentioned too much togetherness is like one factor. And I'm wondering, what are some other factors that can contribute to really low or even non-existent desire? Sure. One other important thing is quality of your relationship outside the bedroom. If we Mm -hmm. are bickering with our partner, if we have unresolved issues, uh, especially I know for many of my female clients that if if I'm not feeling connected with you, I don't want to be intimate. Sometimes people think that our sex life happens in uh, in vacuum, but if we we're not connected with our partner, if we have unresolved issue, that can impact the kind of quality of our uh, intimate life. Uh, similar to that, that, if there's an issue with trust, if there has been a history of infidelity and we haven't uh, worked through it, many couples experience uh, betrayal, infidelity, and they will be able to work mm-hmm. through it. Some people get stronger after that, but sometimes people kind of gloss over it because it's very painful. And if I cannot trust my partner and I haven't worked through the issue, that can impact, uh, impact our, my desire, uh, for, mm. for them and their desire. The other piece is kind of this changes in our life stages. So sometimes I have clients that they have young children and that, that requires some adjustment to the time that you guys have together. So you, uh, it builds up this, uh, kind of connection of lover to lover because sometimes people get stuck in that role of parent to child and they bring that to the bedroom and that can kill mm. uh, desire. So there are a number mm-hmm. of different reasons. The list goes on and on, but these were the few that I see often with my clients. Yeah, that's such an important insight because I think a lot of people think that if they're not having sex, that the relationship is is in trouble. Like we haven't sex had sex in two weeks. We better make it happen to like make sure there's intimacy here. But really, as you mentioned, it's quite the opposite. That oftentimes, if the relationship is in trouble, you're probably not going to be having sex because you're not feeling that connection and intimacy that's going to connect you to physically. Recently, uh, you had a really wonderful blog post on overcoming sexual boredom. 
And in it, you discuss the common misperception that we get bored uh, because we are tired of the same thing happening again and again in, in the bedroom. We fall into a routine, we fall into rut. But you're actually right that sexual boredom does not come from a lack of novelty. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about that. And how do you define sexual boredom and how can we overcome it? Well, it's about, it's a number of different reasons people might experience sexual boredom. Uh, so one would be kind of doing the same routine, but at times that's what people kind of like label the sexual boredom. But sometimes it's about this yearning of wanting to have the passion and excitement that you had with your partner early on. And mm -hmm. uh, you want something different in the bedroom. And sometimes people think about, okay, if I introduce a new toy or a new position, <laughs> uh, that's a solution. But that's not going to bring that excitement and that uh, yearning that you you had early on for the partner. So at times it can require some some deeper work. It's really interesting the studies into like people's perception of sexual frequency because there's this like pervading notion that everyone else is having way more, way better sex than we are. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was thinking about this because I was recently on an, another podcast and we were talking about premature ejaculation and I'm like you know as a sex educator I have to tell you that from a scientific perspective premature ejaculation is 30 seconds or less <laughs> right. and a lot of people think that like you know they have some idea that they have some total mastery of their bodies and in the same way I think people like in the dating scene like assume like hookups are having way more frequently than they actually are and in keeping up with the Joneses, we often think that like other married couples are having way more sex uh, than they actually are. So I'm kind of curious, how do you define like a sexless relationship? How common are they? And as sexual frequency like drops in relationship, when does it actually become a, like a red flag versus this is just normal? Like we have kids and we have one person's in grad school and we have other responsibilities and now we're only having it twice a week rather than every day out of the week like we did when we were young and active and, and a little bit more energetic. So what kind of frequency like are we looking for as healthy as quote unquote normal and when does it become a problem? You talked about the uh, kind of example of like the statistic about how common it is. I was re reading recently that in America, 15% of couples are in sexless relationships, which the mm -hmm. frequency would be on a regular basis, like once than um, once per month. And always people ask about how frequent uh, a couple need to have sex. And it's not about frequency as, as me and you know, it's about the quality of the experiences you're having mm. with your partner. Uh, because as we were talking about, if you're having the sex that it's boring and not satisfying and you're completely checked out, you might even prefer to masturbate because that's, that would be more for, fulfilling for you. And, uh, people think about, because they think, okay, if, if we have this number, like the, if we're meeting this number, then we're good. 
so what's important? I always tell people to think about what works for you and for your partner. Uh, and that's the key. So it, it, based on my experience mm. with my clients that the, uh, kind of, uh, quality is much better than, uh, quantity. Because mm. if you have good, uh, good experiences, mind blowing experiences that tend to, uh, add money to the relationship bank versus you're having kind of like sexual experiences that are below average and it's not satisfying. Mm. And people can arrive to the sexless relationship for a number of different reasons. And, uh, you know, when we're talking about excitement and passion early in the relationship that, yes, as far as a, the kind of neurobiology of our brain, then th- when we are meeting someone, then we get all of sorts of feel-good uh, neuro, uh, neurotransmitters. And then as we're in the relationship longer, then those passion can fade. Uh, and we mm-hmm. need to do things to invest in our relationship and sex life inside and outside the bedroom. So there are a number of different things, even with a person that can happen, that can change their level of desire. Uh, people at times think about, okay, if I, I have a low desire, there is something wrong with my relationship. But oftentimes factor like our uh, kind of hormones, our sleep, our stress level, medication, mm. substance use, all of those things can also impact uh, how much we want to have sex. So I think when we're thinking about desire, it's important to think about a different part. So one is your own kind of like biological and psychological health. Part of it is the relational factor we're talking about. The other part is kind of like psychological factor related to our belief about sex and sexuality and the template we have around these things. Yeah, it is so true that many things can contribute to sex decreasing in a relationship. And let me tell you, if I can count so many people who were prescribed some medication, maybe by their therapist, like an antidepressant, or maybe by their doctor, and we're not told how it affects their sexual desire. And they think that something's wrong with them because they don't make draw that correlation between the medication that they have started. So you mentioned we want to, you know, not look at the stats, not look at some ob- objective perfection of what a sex life should be, but think about what works for me and my partner. And when we talk about mismatched sexual desire, something that comes up a lot is frequency. And one partner might want to have sex every day, maybe multiple times a day. And the other one's perfectly fine with having it once a month. And oftentimes when this happens, it becomes a source of conflict. One partner feels like they're constantly pushing and being rejected by the other person, while that person often feels pressured and judged um, that there's something wrong with what it is they want. And another thing I'm curious about is sort of how we do come to that mutual decision because I'm really hesitant to use the word compromise, which implies that like both partners have to give something up. So I'm curious, multi-part question, when we do have desires or different desires around sexual frequency, what are we to do? And like in your office, do you have like a better word than say compromise or like the mutual goal that you're working towards in the relationship? Well, I usually go with the language that people bring in. (laughs) When I ask them what their goal is, and they'll go based on that. Because you're right, compromise, settling, like, feels like settling down. And who wants to settle, uh, for, for the sex that they want? 
But going right. on kind of like making the decision about what feels right for us, that's such a tough, uh, tough decision for many couples when there is a, a discrepancy or differences in desire. Uh, because uh, when there is this pressure cycle of like, I want sex, you don't want it, I'm pursuing you, I'm withdrawing, you're withdrawing, and then that pressure mm-hmm. cycle never works. And mm. my invitation for people is that if you've been trying to doing this dance for a while and it's not working, uh, stop it. Because sometimes <laughs> try something different that people are kind of like they are at this dance because they don't know how to change it for years. Mm-hmm. And that creates additional issues in the relationship. Uh, one thing that studies shows that people that schedule sex, and I know it's one of another thing that people dread, <laughs> schedule sex. <laughs> but uh, give me a minute, I'll explain how you can make it exciting. But schedule sex, uh, they they tend to have more fulfilling sexual connection. There was this study uh, that they looked at German couples that they schedule sex and they talked about how that was helping them to kind of long term to have more uh, satisfaction satisfying connections. Uh, When we talk about scheduling sex, people think about, when they think about sex, they think about intercourse. And Mm -hmm. we know that that, like when we're pressuring, uh, putting pressure on ourselves and our partner, that's often is not, we might even have performance issues or like desire issues. I invite people to think about, okay, what feels uh, the frequency of time that me and you want to connect? Think about it Mm -hmm. as connection. And then we're thinking about sex. Okay, so we create this menu of options. Sex is definitely not only intercourse. That's just at times, even for many of couples that I work with, that's the least interesting thing in their uh, menu of options. Uh, Sex could be uh, kind of like doing a mutual uh, kind of massaging, could be mutual masturbation, could be all sorts of outer course, all sorts of like engaging in kinky behaviors. There's a galaxy of options out there. My invitation for people that are listening to this show is kind of creating your own menu that what are some of the 10 things that are uh, exciting for both of us that we can uh, kind of like look into when we are doing our this sexy dates. And my invitation for you is from these 10 items, choose eight of them that are not, they not require penetration or erect penis or uh, those kind of uh, kind of activities. So you have options. So if like, you know, this, like if the scheduled time is Friday night and you both are exhausted, then maybe then that connection to connecting time could be like reading erotica together or kind of playing a game. So it could be all sorts of things around that. So I think that's important to schedule that kind of having that time of connection on our schedule. So we know that that's a dedicated time for, for us and our partners. Then in reality, for a number of different reasons, we might want to have more sexual uh, sexual experience than our partner. It's like our appetite. Some people have bigger appetite. Some people have less appetite. And uh, similar to our uh, f- appetite for food, 
during different ages, different stages of our life, uh, our our desire can change. And then it's important to talk to our partner about our relationship agreement. Then what is our relationship mm-hmm. agreement? Are you okay if uh, when I'm not feeling like I'm not in the mood, will you be okay if I masturbate? Is there anything that it's important for you to talk about this or not? Uh, some people kind of think about, okay, masturbation is okay. Some people kind of talk about, uh, I don't want you to watch porn. Whatever that feels comfortable, we're talking about that with our partner. And sometimes people say, I don't want you to, I'm, I'm not comfortable uh, for you to masturbate. Then we're talking about what then what what is the other option. So I have couples that they uh, kind of engage in some kind of a sexual play with their partner, uh, or they they are part of their kind of like a uh, this uh, self pleasuring experience with their partner. But I think it's important to a know that that's completely normal to have different appetite, and b think mm-hmm. about. What is the negotiation that we're doing here? What can we do to make sure that we are, uh, we and our partner both have healthy sexual experiences and also desiring where we are at this time? I love that idea of a sexual menu that you just mentioned. Cause I'm also imagining like, you know how you have like the fries and the Coke that like the combo meal, mm-hmm. you know, so you're like, so, <laughs> so you're like, so honey, <laughs> like number one or two. number three. <laughs> So you mentioned um, having relationship agreements because, yeah, if our partner isn't like up for something, there are other routes, right? We can masturbate. We can pleasure ourselves. Maybe we have a certain level of permission to look at porn and, and fulfill ourselves in that way. And I wanted to bring this to the context of open relationships and perhaps even polyamory because a lot of folks in polyamorous communities also don't like that kind of push-pull, pursue and withdrawal of relationships or even think that one person should fulfill all your sexual, romantic, and intimate needs in the relationship. And you see it a lot in kink communities too, where you know you have a married partnership, both partners are very, very happy with each other, but one is into bondage, is into S&M play, and the other one is not, and they do come up with a sort of relationship agreement that allows one person to say play with other people that being said there are many couples who are on their way to getting divorced and breaking up and exploring things to other people is one step on the way (laughs) to uh, separating so curious your opinion on the right time the wrong time um, to bring other people um, to basically fill in the gaps that want that exist in the current relationship well, I agree with you that that can be a good option at times. I had, I have, and I had clients in my practice that they navigated consensual non-monogamy for years and mm-hmm. it only strengthened their relationship. But it's definitely not an option for everyone. It's not a right fit for every single person for a number of different reasons. At times, people uh, kind of open up the door to kind of the kind of this uh, non-monogamy uh, because they they are avoiding conflict. There are things mm. going on in our relationship that we haven't talked about it. It's easier for us to kind of go outside the relationship. The other pieces at time, that's not the case for everyone in an open relationship. Again, many, many couples that I work with, they have good experiences in their relationship with their partner. But sometimes people use this as a regulate their uh, emotional connection. Sometimes mm. we're not comfortable 
being emotionally comfortable, uh, kind of being uh, with someone kind of intimate, then we are transferring that energy to other places. Uh, but as far as when it's good is when we have a solid partnership with our uh, partner. I'm thinking about we, we are good together, but these are unmet needs that I perhaps we explored uh, these parts of our sexuality. And uh, one partner, as you said, like I see it a lot in King community, that I want this particular sexual behavior and the other partner is not interested. It's not that that is bad or the person is bad. It's not something that's very exciting for them or they want it in the frequency they want. And then people create disagreement to go outside the relationship to fulfill that need. Or sometimes people want uh, kind of like lots of emotional connection. And I think there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with wanting to have multiple source of love. And uh, that can actually energize a relationship because the partner does not feel that they need to meet all of their partner's need. Uh, and that, that, that strength and that could be primary relationship. Uh, being said that there, of course, are not all hierarchy, uh, have hierarchy. Uh, but I think what's important is to think about that whether you and your partner are agreeing to this. This is something that's been discussed ahead of time. Because what I see a lot in the dating uh, realm right now, that people uh, present themselves as monogamous, and then when the person is engaged in this kind of like a relational dynamic, then they say, yo, I've never been uh, a monogamous person. This is what I want. So I mm-hmm. think it's important to be honest about this and also kind of clear, create clear boundaries with our partner. But it doesn't mean that if we're opening the relationship, there is anything specifically wrong it are in our partnership. And it could be a tool to strengthen what you have with introducing other people to meet other needs. Absolutely. It's so funny because earlier we mentioned how it's not what you do, but how you do it. And what I'm hearing from you now is that it's not what you do, but why you do it in terms of are you exploring alternate forms of relationship because it serves the relationship because you're coming from a place of love and connection and fulfillment or are you doing it because you're avoiding conflict? Some people come to polyamory because they have very full heart and they want to deepen relationships with multiple people. Some people explore multiple relationships because they're unable to have one deep relationship or go into a deep connection with one person. So then they kind of spread it out right. <laughs> over a number of people. So absolutely knowing the why and then having those agreements ahead of time can be so important. So thank you so much, Dr. Mwale, for coming on. And I have to finish by asking you a question I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love? Well, one thing that I want people to know that I see a lot in my practice, that's completely okay for uh, for your love for your partner to strengthen and fade. At times when you are in a long-term relationship, your connection can weaken and the love you have for the person can be, can get weakened for a number of different reasons. What's important is that to know that if you are asking for help, if you're working in a relationship, you can fall back in love with your partner. It's about how you're tackling this. Is it, are you like when you notice that, are you panicking and, uh, trying to kind of like do, kind of do a desperate attempt to find love somewhere else or not resolving this? 
Or if you're noticing this and this is something you want, then you can work on it together with your partner to uh, get to the place that you were. It's something that I see every day people are doing. So that's my recommendation for mm. people that do not panic if you're falling <laughs> out of love with your long-term partner. Uh, you just might need to work on a few things. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. It's such a hopeful message. And that's one of the things I just love when I talk to like any sex therapist, sex educator, is the normalization of the wide variety of human experience, the ups and downs that we all experience, the imperfections that we perceive in our relationships are just normal and it's part of the path. So thank you so much for that. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you? Thank you for providing me with this opportunity. They can check out my uh, website. It's called sexologypodcast.com. And I have the same handle in Instagram, sexologypodcast. Wonderful. So thank you, Dr. Nazanin Moali, for coming on to the show and sharing us so much important insight and wisdom. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the show. We hope you remember all the valuable lessons from today, including one, that communication is a skill, that successful couples work with problems as they come up rather than let them fester and let resentment build. And believe it or not, too much togetherness can kill desire. When it comes to your sex life, it's less about quantity and more about quality. And the pursue and withdraw pressure cycle never works. And one thing you might try is create your own menu. 10 things that are exciting for both of you, including majority of those things, not just being about intercourse. And if you're in a long-term relationship, you feel your love begin to ebb, then don't worry. It's all part of the practice. Every relationship goes through ups and downs. You can continue to build your lifelong relationship together. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Nazanin. Thank you so much for having me on this show and thank you for uh, facilitating this meaningful conversation. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.